please take out your Bibles with me this morning? Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you today, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you there. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you after the service. Matthew, chapter 9. Last week, if you were with us in our study, we finished chapter 8. And we saw the, the story at that point of, of, of Jesus and his disciples crossing from his area of home base, Capernaum, across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And we talked to that, that in that journey across the, the lake there, that, that Jesus fell asleep in the boat in the storm that came, and, and Jesus calmed the storm, got to the other side, cast the, the demons out into the pigs, the demons that were in that, the, the men that were there, and then he sends one of them in particular out as his first missionary, that story that we went through last week. If you'll remember, we, we talked at the time that the people, when they came out and they witnessed this amazing miracle, this, these crazy demon-possessed men now healed. And, but the fact of the matter was the demons were cast into the pigs. Pigs ran into the Sea of Galilee and perished. And the people, instead of praising God for that, said, Jesus, leave. Get out of here. And so Jesus, as we spoke that time, he honored their request. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 9. It says, getting into a boat. Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So he crosses back over the Sea of Galilee with his disciples to the city of Capernaum. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Coming back again, Capernaum, their hometown, probably in the home of Peter, his home there, we know that his mother-in-law was living with him there, and probably the home base of operations for Jesus and his disciples. We see, as we look at the other gospel accounts of this, of this narrative in Mark and Luke, we get a lot more detail that fills in a lot more information about this. Matthew just says, Jesus is there, they bring a paralytic man to him. Well, we look at these other accounts, and we see in the gospel of Mark that there, were, there was a great multitude of people that were there, so many that, that the house is packed full. There are people all around the house, so many people there that these men can't get their friend to Jesus. They're trying, and you can imagine they're probably, excuse me, excuse me, we want to see Jesus. And they're like, we all want to see Jesus, man. You know, stay in the back. And, and so they can't get their friend there. We get a little more information from Luke as to some of the people that were present there as well. Not just your common everyday, you know, working class people, but there were Pharisees that were, in, that were present, givers of the law that were there, or, or teachers of the law that were there present in that. Not just Pharisees too, from the local Galilee area. Luke tells us that they've traveled as far as Jerusalem to come and find out more about this Jesus and everything that is going on. So, we, we, we look at this story and we see from Mark's again account that there's all of these people, they can't get their friend to Jesus, so they figure out the only way we can do this is to climb up on top of the house and dig a hole down through the ceiling. And so imagine the scene. This, the houses at the time were made of stone, and then they had wood beams that were laid across, and then thatch, and then dirt and mud were packed on top, and then they put tiles on top of that, and that was a typical home at the time. They go up on top, they pull the tiles out, they start digging a hole through the roof. Jesus teaching, talking to the people, all of a sudden this commotion that's going on from above, right? All this noise all of a sudden. Put ourselves in this. It, Matthew's account here kind of just kind of rests to this point, but imagine the chaos. 
Imagine all of a sudden, all of these people, all of a sudden this dirt starts falling down and everything right in the middle of this room. Everybody's attention looks up into this hole that is being created. And then all of a sudden, here comes this guy getting lowered down in the middle of the room. Imagine. Mark's gospel, however, tells us one other little interesting bit of information that there were four friends of this man. Luke doesn't mention the number, neither does Matthew. And why, did, why is the number important? Well, it's not, but I find it kind of interesting. I wonder why Mark is the one who records the four. You see, the, the most scholars believe that Mark got his information from Peter. Peter was the one that relayed the information to Mark, and Mark simply recorded it. Why would Peter know how many guys were up on the roof? Because it's his roof. He's probably like, somebody's going to fix that, and probably went up there and, and said, hey, you four... Who's going to take care of that? I, I don't know. That's just my little interjection there. <laughs> but imagine the scene. Everybody focusing in on the chaos. But look at what Jesus focuses in on. It says, seeing their faith. Seeing the faith of these men. That's what Jesus locks in on. He locks in on the faith of these men that nothing is going to stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. Nothing, no matter, no, 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 doesn't matter how many people are there, they're not going to stop them. It doesn't matter that the fact that there's a building in the way, they're going to get their friend to Jesus. Notice what Jesus says, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Of all the things Jesus could have said at that moment, this is what Jesus says to him. Take courage, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Take courage. The first thing that, that, that Jesus speaks to him, I, I, that, that challenges me and it blesses me when I think that's what Jesus said. His first reaction is compassion towards him. Imagine again what this guy is thinking. We, don't, we can only imagine. He's up on the roof. They're starting to dig through. Maybe he's the one who said, hey guys, maybe this isn't such a great idea. Right? I mean, who is going to fix this? And what if he doesn't, what if he gets mad? I mean, they don't have any idea what's going to happen. And they lower him down, and he's the one sitting. Jesus looks at him and he has compassion on him. Take courage. Gives him a term of endearment. Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. I'm challenged by that too because I don't know about you, but oftentimes my default reaction is not compassion. Especially when somebody, I'm busy, and somebody interrupts me. My default isn't, you know what? Your needs are the most important thing right now. Oftentimes it's, okay, you know, I'm going to let you know you're bothering me. Not Jesus. Jesus, we're going to see as we continue to study through his life, this happens all the time. He's interrupted. And you know what? He does. It's, it's not a problem to interrupt Jesus. He's like, oh, what, what is it that you need? I will address your need right now. A heart of compassion towards him. We see that there were others that were there, obviously, noticing what's going on. Verse 3, some of them were scribes. And they said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. 
But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. The scene again, as we see this here, packed full, and some of these scribes that are there in, the, in this house or perhaps in the doorway, they see Jesus respond to this man saying, take courage, your sins are forgiven, and they start whispering among themselves saying, that's blasphemy. That's, that's blasphemy. And, and the, Jesus, it says, he, he knew their thoughts. Can you imagine that kind of blowing him away when he addresses them as they're just whispering? There's no way they could hear, Jesus could hear them with all of the commotion going on. Luke, again, gives us a little bit more information about what they said. They said, this fellow blasphemes. This man blasphemes because only God can forgive sins. Got that right? What they missed, though, was God's in the room. God is there in their presence. And again, the compassion of God, the compassion of Jesus speaking to the scribes. Again, in, in, I would imagine in a very corrective tone to them, but again, a heart that goes out to them. Notice he says, so that you will know. He cares that they know the truth too. He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Now, that phrase right there, the Son of Man, would have registered with the scribes. The scribes were the ones who, who copied the word of God. Who, who it was the, that was their life's duty. We talked about this last week. And by the way, it's not recorded for us in here. This is just, again, one of those things that made me go, hmm, I wonder this week. I wonder if one of those scribes was the one we talked about last week. Remember the one who said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, the foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head talked about the fact that th this guy was saying, man, I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll ride your coattails all the way to the top. And Jesus said, it's not like that. You don't understand. You need to count the cost. You need to know what it is you're signing up for. And we, we, we believe that he then backed away from this. I wonder if he was one of these now that is crit being critical of Jesus. Don't know. Perhaps. But he challenges them saying this, and uh, that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. They would have known immediately because of their, their study of the scripture. They knew the scriptures. They would have known exactly what Jesus was speaking of. You see, in Daniel, something that they would have recorded many times and taught on themselves, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. And he says to them specifically that you would know this is true he said, what's easier? What's easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say to this man, who we don't, we don't know how long he's been in this condition, but probably a long time, or his friends wouldn't have been so desperate to get him to Jesus. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to tell this paralytic man, get up, pick up your bed, and go home? And so he says, so that you would know it, he, he commands it, and it happens. Laying it all out right there before them, giving them irrefutable proof that he is who he says he is and now giving them the decision, are they going to believe or not? Showing he has absolute authority over sin. 
showing as is stated for us in Acts that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. Can you imagine that? How that must have blown their minds? He knew the, everybody's thoughts in that room at the time. He knew the friend's thoughts on the ceiling, I'm sure, that are up there going, hey, Jesus, that's great, but what about his legs? That's why we brought him here. But he knew the thoughts of the paralytic man, too. And I can, I can only imagine again the scene, because words can't describe it, but we could put ourselves there, getting lowered down, on the, and all of a sudden now laying on the ground in front of Jesus, and then that locking eyes with Jesus. And Jesus seeing right through all of everything else and what everybody else is expecting him to do and seeing right through to this man's heart. And this man's heart now, when he comes face to face with the holy God, the holy creator of the universe, looking at God incarnate, Jesus looking him in the face must have been so overwhelmed with his unholiness, with his sinfulness. Jesus knew that was his greatest need. And he said, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. We don't know how long it had been since this man had walked. And we oftentimes, I know I do, we take it for granted that we can walk. And it's a great thing to be able to walk, but it is a far greater thing than walking physically to be able to walk spiritually, to walk with the Lord. And that's what Jesus knew this man needed far above. He knew that this man wanted that far more than he even wanted to walk physically. John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He knew that's what he desperately needed and desperately wanted as he stood before Jesus. He knew his thoughts and he directly addressed them. Guys, he knows our thoughts too. He knows every thought in every mind in this room right now. He knows what you're thinking at this very moment. If you're thinking, all right, Pastor Brett, get on to the next point. He knows that. I don't. He's not revealing that to me right now. But he knows your thoughts. He knows your deepest hurt. He knows every detail about what you're going through right now. Even those things you haven't shared with anyone else. Even those things that you haven't even prayed about he knows, and he cares, and he has compassion, and he wants to take care of it. Will you let him? Will you let him into those areas and just say, all right, God, here. He wants to have compassion on you as well. This term that he uses here, take courage, is is one of his favorite phrases. We see this several times through the Gospels when he's speaking to those in need, those who are suffering. Take courage. Be strong in this. 
Matter of fact, it's the phrase he uses in John 16, speaking to all of us. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We're gonna face trials. We're gonna face tribulation. But we can take courage because he has overcome and in him we overcome. Now we see that again, Jesus, to make a point to the scribes, but also to touch this man physically, to take care of that need, to bless him and his friends, Jesus heals him. He says, pick up your bed. Stand up now, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus heals him physically. Jesus heals him completely. And I don't, if, you've, if you've ever had a part of your body immobilized for any length of time, it's, it's quite, a, quite a sight when it finally, when it's finally a cast is taken off. When I was in high school, I, I hurt my knee right away at the beginning of the, my senior year in basketball. I partially tore a tendon, but didn't completely tear it. And the doctor said, there's a good chance you can make it through the whole season. So I did. But after, after the last game, the day after our last game, I was put in a cast from my hip to my ankle for about three, three and a half weeks. When they finally cut the cast off, my leg was like that big around. It's like, where'd all the muscle go in that short period of time? And I couldn't bend my knee. I mean, it was like excruciating just to bend my knee and to work through all of that. I had to go through all of this physical therapy for just to even be able to walk again and then run and then play basketball again. Jesus says, get up. Pick up your bed. Go. When Jesus healed, man, the muscles just bam, to able to walk, able to, able to function. I can, again, imagine when he, if he went home and had a family. When he gets there, you know, it's like, hey, check this out. <laughs> but to come back to the, the point again, all of that, is, as awesome as that was, that's temporary. That body that he healed that day would eventually die would eventually totally decay and be gone. But the first act that Jesus did, your sins are forgiven, that's eternal. God still heals physically. We to pray for that. But the, the thing that we need to pray for most is those that have never had the touch of that eternal healing. The sins being forgiven. Because again, guys, unless the Lord tarries, all of these bodies are gonna wear out and we're gonna die. But... We're going to live forever with our sins forgiven for those of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Well, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Here we're introduced to the author of the, the book that we're studying, Matthew. And it's interesting, again, when we look at this, and I would recommend this to, this to you as we continue. As you, I, I hope you're reading ahead as we're, as we're studying through this and reading ahead for that, to, to look at the other gospel accounts. Because if, when we look at them side by side, there's a lot of information that's filled in. And it's interesting when we look at this and we see this call of Matthew to follow Jesus in the other accounts Something interesting appears for us. If we look at, at Mark's account of this, it says that, when Jesus came up and approached him, Mark records that he came up to Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, Levi was Matthew's given name. 
It tells us that, that he was more than likely from the tribe of Levi. His name Levi, his father's name Alphaeus, pointing to that, the, the, his tribe, his family. It tells us in Luke's account that Jesus approached a tax collector, focusing in on his occupation, who he was. And tax collectors at that time, we need to understand, were not very popular people. Not like today. I mean, we all love our tax collectors today. But back then, they weren't popular. They, they weren't liked by hardly anybody. The Roman, they were, they were Jews who worked for the Romans. The Romans didn't like them because they were Jewish. Jews didn't like them because they worked for the Romans. They were sellouts. They, they, it was a model for corruption. The way the taxes were collected, Rome said you need to collect this amount of tax. Anything else you collect, you keep. So they did, and they, many of them became very wealthy. And, and like I said, the, the Jewish people, they just they hated them. They, they, they couldn't stand them because they're sellouts. And that's what, that's what Luke then focuses in on here. Look at our text here in Matthew again, though. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man. A man called Matthew. That's what Jesus saw. He didn't see the family he came from. He didn't see the tribe that he came from. He didn't see his occupation. He saw a man. And he saw in that man all that he could be in Jesus. And the same is true for everybody. I don't know what you think Jesus sees when he sees you, but I'll tell you, if you think he sees anything other than what you can be in him, you have a wrong understanding. See, Jesus doesn't see what family you're from, whether it's good or bad. He doesn't care if, you're, if your parents were, were Christians, if your grandparents were Christians, all of that that, that, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they didn't follow God at all. He just cares about your situation right now, right where you are. Your past, that's not important. He doesn't care what tribe you're from. If you've been, if you've been a part of Calvary Chapel since you were a kid, doesn't matter. <laughs> he doesn't care about your, your occupation and all of the things that you've accumulated and all of, all of those types of things. None of that matters. He just focuses on who you are and what you can be in him, clothed in his righteousness, filled with his power, that is what Jesus cares about. That is what Jesus sees. That's what he saw in this man, Matthew. And again, just like we've talked about before with the paralytic man and the eye contact that they made, only Matthew can, can write this because only Matthew knows the look that he got from Jesus, that compassionate one-on-one, -on -one, that look that went right through to his very soul. And he said, follow me. Of all of the people that day, of all of the people that were listening to Jesus, of all, of all of those things that were going on, this was a personal call to Matthew. And it's Matthew who is the one that records these words that we're all familiar with in Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I can only imagine that when Matthew heard those words of Jesus, he was saying, amen, 
Amen. Because he knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He lived it. He says, that is true. I bear witness to that. You bring your burden to him, he takes it. Imagine the burden that Matthew was carrying around with him. Again, as a Jew sold out to the Romans, tax collector, and here's this man who touches him and changes his life. That burden that he had been carrying now on Jesus. All of the sin in his life now on Jesus. And now he says, follow me. And that that word literally means be following me. A continual action. And Matthew again saying, every step I've taken following him, I don't regret one. He counted the cost. Again, Luke tells us that he left everything behind and followed Jesus. He had to leave everything behind. He didn't have a choice. It's not like he could say, well, I'm going to try this out for a week. If it doesn't work, I can come back to my tax franchise. That's not how it worked. When he walked away, he walked away from everything. He counted the cost. Last week, we looked at a couple who did the same thing but chose differently. This week we see in a man the the desire to follow Jesus and saying, all right, whatever that cost is. And we see Paul, Paul saw it the same way. In Philippians chapter three, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul, like Matthew, counted the cost, looked at all that they had accumulated, all of this stuff in their life and said, I leave that all to follow Jesus. Tells us what Matthew does next in verse 10. It says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, and we know from the other accounts this is Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew throws a party and invites all of his tax collector and sinner friends over. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew goes and tells all of his his friends. And his friends consisted of two groups as we see them lumped together all the time. Tax collectors and sinners. That's the, the, they, they all hung out together because all of the religious people would never associate with them. So they hung out together and so here's Jesus and Matthew now touched by Jesus, life changed by Jesus. He said, I gotta get all of my friends over to meet Jesus. So he throws this party and they come over and Jesus more than happy to come and and share with them and even break bread together with them which was unheard of again by the religious leaders to break bread with sinners. So Jesus there with them and Here's this statement, as it overhears the Pharisees again speaking over there. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' response probably could have been, because I don't want to eat alone. Because if I don't eat with sinners, I'm dining alone every night. <laughs> but he tells them why. 
Bottom line, he said, because doctors don't see healthy people. Doctors need to see sick people. And I'm just making a house call. These people are sick and they need a doctor. He's coming to to where the sick people are to heal them, to touch their lives, to change them. And we see this as we continue to study through his life, how that continued to happen, how lives were continually changed as they came into contact with Jesus. Need to understand that he's still in that business today. He's still into healing sick people. He's still into changing the lives of sinners. And we need to understand, guys, that we're all sinners saved by grace. Not one of us can stand in a position that that would ever be standoffish to somebody who is in a condition that we would be in were it not for Jesus coming into our lives. And those of us in the room who have been changed by the love of God, who have been touched by Jesus and changed, and we should all have those. We have now Christian friends because we hang around Christians, but we all still have those friends and acquaintances and people that we work with and and those types of things that are not Christians. We need to be actively involved in getting those together, joining together, introducing those who don't know Jesus to Jesus. Invite them over to your house for dinner and have, have some Christian friends over and just, just share the love of God with them. Invite them to church. Guys, recognize this or not, but this building that we're sitting in right here is a hospital. It's a hospital where we pray all the time, God, bring the sick people to us, sick people so that we can, we can introduce them to you because, again, we're all sinners, all of us, not, not one of us. We ran all the perfect people away a long time ago. We're, we're all sinners saved by grace. And we need to have that, that place that says, welcome, come. Let us, let us tell you about Jesus so that you can be changed too. Matthew and the friends in our first part of our story today were determined to get their friends to Jesus. How determined are we? What do we let get in the way? Is it other people? Is it, is it ourselves at times worried about what we What do we let get in the way? I'm challenged by this again. They did whatever it took. We need to do whatever it takes. I believe time is short. Many need to know. Well, moving on, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined." 
but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. It says the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, these disciples now come to Jesus and, and probably coming to Jesus and hanging around Jesus now because more than likely at this time John has been arrested. And so they are now following Jesus and probably have been following him for a few weeks and, and observing things that are going on. And they ask a couple of questions. Why is it that we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples don't fast? They've observed now, after watching them, that Jesus' disciples haven't been fasting. And they have been. And, and the question that they ask first is one that needs to be answered too. Why are we and the Pharisees fasting? Jesus could have said, that's a great question. Why is it exactly that you're fasting? But he doesn't. Are they fasting because... It's some type of ritualistic observation that they have to do because that's why the Pharisees did it. We saw that back. Jesus talked about that on the Sermon on the Mount. They fast and they, they let everybody know. They fast twice a week. They fast for this. They let everybody know they're fasting and the reason for that is to draw attention to themselves. More than likely, John's disciples were fasting because their rabbi, John, was, was in prison and they were maybe possibly seeking the Lord in that. But they're saying, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus now gives three illustrations in this. And the underlying message that Jesus is getting across in all three of the illustrations that he's giving is that there is something new happening. That he is here. And that now because he is here, he is ushering in a new life. He's ushering in a new age. He is bringing along now the new covenant. The new covenant that has been spoken of in the Old Testament prophets, foretelling this time. So many times in the Old Testament, this image is given of, of the bridegroom and the bride. That God being the groom and his bride being his people. That, is, that illustration is given many times in the Old Testament. And it's not something that is foreign to John's disciples. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 3, it's recorded for us this, this exchange between John and his disciples. Beginning in verse 25, it said, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, meaning Jesus, Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They're saying, John, remember that Jesus, the one that you pointed to, you said the Lamb of God? People are going to him now. They're not coming to us anymore. They're all going to him. And John answered them and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Verse 29, he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus is saying, John, your rabbi, your teacher told you about this told you that I am the bridegroom. He was rejoicing that I am here. He said that I must increase, he must decrease. I'm the groom. 
I'm the one you've been waiting for. And he says, while I'm here, you don't fast. Again, this, this new age, this new covenant that is coming in, and it's all about his presence. The other two illustrations that he gives here, speaking of this new age, this new thing that he is bringing along. He, he says, he speaks of garments and wineskins, the garment illustration that he gives. He says, nobody takes a, a patch of new cloth and puts it on a tear on an old cloth. You don't do that because when you would wash the garment then, the new cloth would shrink and the old cloth had already shrunk. So the old cloth isn't going to shrink with it. So the new cloth will shrink, make the tear even worse. He says, you're not going to put new wine into old wineskins. The skins that they would use then were, were animal skins, and they would fill them with new wine. And as the wine then would ferment, gases would be given off, and it would expand. So the wineskin needed to be pliable and to be able to stretch and to grow as the wine then fermented and expanded. Well, then the wineskin, after that happens, becomes an old wineskin. It becomes hard and brittle at that point. So if you put new wine into an old wineskin and it expands again, it bursts and, and the wine is, is spilled out. Jesus giving these, these illustrations of you cannot pour now something new into this old rigid structure. He's saying, I didn't come to patch up this old religious structure that is here. I didn't come to pour into this. I came to fulfill all that was pointed to and the new covenant usher in this new work that is to be done. The wine here is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Not saying that pouring something new in, but we need to be new and pliable. Speaking of that, the, how this applies to us now as God wants to do a new work in us, are we willing and able to al allow him to do that work in us? God has great plans. God has great desires, I believe, again, to do a work in and amongst us. Are we willing to let him do that work in us? An illustration, another illustration I had heard of this that, that, I, that I, I love with when talking of this, that an acorn, when it is planted in the ground and a giant oak tree then grows, does the acorn disappear? The acorn does not disappear just the fact that the shell that it was in initially can't contain all that God wanted to do. Are we allowing God to do all that he wants to do in us? Individually and as a church, we can easily get comfortable in our shells. You know, life is good and things are happy and overall things are, are going well, but what if God wants to do something far greater than that? Are we willing and, and to say, all right, God, whatever it is, yeah, I'm, I'm even willing to step out of where I'm comfortable if that's what you want me to do. We should all be challenged by this on a, on a regular basis. God, what is it that you want to do in us? In Isaiah chapter 6, the, the triune Godhead speaking, says, who will go for us? Who, who can we send? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. Whatever you want to do, I'm willing. Guys, there's a lot of hurting people around us. There's a community of, of lost and dying people 
on their, on their way to hell forever. I believe God wants to reach them. And I know, I know that there isn't anybody in this room that would say, ah, let them go. We all want to see God do a great work, but are we willing to set aside our preferences to say, all right, God, you know, I'm comfortable here, but if you want to do something greater and bigger, all right, I'm ready. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us individually and in us as a fellowship. And again, I just, I, I asked the question that I, we all need to ask ourselves, am I willing to let the Holy Spirit do that work in me, do that work in us? We've arranged this morning the, the order of service to allow for some time right now before communion to to spend some time in our hearts just going before the Lord in that. The worship team's gonna come up now and, and lead us in a couple of, couple of songs as we prepare again for communion. But I would ask that in this time that we would, that we would say, Lord, have your way. That we would invite the Holy Spirit to, to move amongst us and to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.